Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guests are Zach Thompson and Jack Frimston, who are co-directors from We Have a Meeting. The two of them help uh, other organizations build the top of the funnel, but only when it's right. We're going to discuss when it's right to outsource the top of your funnel, the mistakes people make when they are outsourcing, when they're approaching their market, looking for some blind spots, frequently unasked questions. And we're probably going to argue over a couple of things as well, (laughs) because in the green room, we found some stuff that I disagree with them on, but I'm sure we'll find some common ground. So, Zach, Jack, welcome. Thanks for having us. Excellent. So, Jack, let's start with you. Could you give us 60 seconds on your history, please? Okay, so my first ever sales job was when I was 15 years old. I was an appointment booker for advertising space for the football ground, not good football teams, teams like Wolverhampton. I don't know if that will rile anybody. And I got slammed down. This was before the the days of the uh, interweb. They gave me a yellow pages. They said, you can start at the front or the back. And I was booking all these appointments. Could book them, no issues, nothing closed. It was a summer job and none of my meetings closed. I had the rep on the road every single day, um, nothing closed. And then after that, I've, I've always kind of been in different sales jobs. I went to university and I studied drama, like every aspiring salesman chooses to do. <laughs> it's probably and, a better degree than Middle Eastern studies. That's probably. <laughs> um, and then at the end of my degree, I thought, what am I going to do? I'm going to move down to London. I've got a sales job selling Sky Insurance because everybody needs insurance. Was for this their between jobs? Brilliant. In between oh, jobs. Between auditions. Yeah. Yep. In between. And I, I, I was. Uh, do I say boy band? I was in a boy band for five years, uh, an indie indie pop band. Worked in sales alongside that, and then did this band. Got to decent heights. Did a few gigs with like Madness and the Beach Boys. Oh wow! And then it, um, as all things that are going up, it tumbled back down. And then I was like, "What do I do?" So I ran off and travelled the world for a couple of years. And then during the pandemic, came back and got a, a sales job selling insurance. And I, I thought, right, what am I doing? And then my best friend of 15 years and co-director was like, I've got something good here and I want you to come in on it. And it it started, we have a meeting. Excellent. So Zach, over to you. Yeah, so some synergy there. So I thought I was going to be a rock star. I started playing music when I was 13, took it all the way to university level, went to the London College of Music and left that. And like all people who don't know what to do after uni, fell into <laughs> a sales job. <laughs> Went to a um, a recruitment day with my long hair and mismatched suit and just obviously had the confidence from thinking I was a rock star and someone spotted that in me and hired me in a sales job. Was it media sales or IT? It was IT. So it was quite a complex software for construction that I was selling. So I went in and it was just as Wolf of Wall Street was coming out. So the atmosphere in a sales role was trying to emulate that, which was quite a scary, shocking sight. A few of the people that I worked with aren't here anymore on this planet to uh, put it into context. So mm-hmm. went through that, worked for lots and lots of different companies in probably the space of about nine years, predominantly in construction and software, was kind of headhunted a lot. A lot of poor leadership, a lot of deals lost, a lot of deals won, and felt like during the pandemic, I'd perhaps learned enough and was prospecting for a company at home, thinking, why am I not just doing this for myself? And then the business was born. So I thought maybe I could do what I've done for those nine years for lots of companies and charge them a fee rather than just doing it for myself. So then we have a meeting was born. I got a full diary, hired Jack, rest is history. 
So what, what I'm really curious about then is what was your moment that eventually after you know, years and years of working for other people where you just thought there's a better way? Truth be told, I was actually listening to a podcast with your friend, Benjamin Dennehy, and he had mentioned if during the pandemic you're sat at home prospecting for, for another company and they're getting the lion's share, you should probably be doing it for yourself. And it sort of set a fire in my head. Oh. And then I started asking my client base, if I could do the sales part for you, would you be interested in that? And one person said yes. Then two people said yes. Then I had about 10 people that were saying, yeah, of course, I'd, I'd love someone to come in and do that bit for us. So I thought perhaps there was more in it than I'd initially realized. But I'd love to say it was my own brain power <laughs> that <laughs> ignited that. Mostly, it's you know a process of erosion, isn't it? You just finally get worn down, and you think, "Fuck it, enough's enough." I remember that certainly happened to me a couple of times in my career. Okay, so I have a question because this this is a big question in my mind um, because I, I'm trying to look into the future and understand where things are going because I want to you know I want to meet the puck where it's going to be, uh, not where it is, and. To my mind, the escalation of costs in terms of trying to keep up with uh, data, AI, MarTech, sales tech, sales enablement, the uh, dialing technology, and all the other stuff that goes with a compliant business in this field, the the cost of the arms race alone, it should be enough to make many people smart. But then you look at the salary escalation that's going on. Mm-hmm. I, I saw the graphic of the top 25 SaaS companies and w- uh, what they're paying and earning. And you know, that salary inflation is going to be crippling because it will suck out talent from other areas of the industry. And other industries will then lose their sales talent. And what will be left will be typically the underperformers. So I'm really curious is there a good argument to be had for outsourcing the entire top of funnel up until you maybe, I don't know, 20, 50, 100 people? Jack? I feel like there'll always be an opportunity to have it in-house. And I think that probably falls down to bad leadership and micromanagement and the people that you tend to find in management roles from, from experience. I'm not saying everybody, but tend to be control freaks. And I've worked in many companies where I've been part of a WhatsApp group where you get messages 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I feel that the idea of some managers outsourcing it forever and, and handing it over, no matter how good the results are, would feel that they're losing a little bit of their baby and they wouldn't be able to control that. So they'd want to keep it on a lead. Well, uh, again, this is very interesting. There's something I'm trying to understand uh, better. And it's really understanding how value systems affect people's behavior and how they engage, what motivates them and so on. And um, there are certain types of value systems that thrive within a capitalist economy. So people who have a drive to win, people who have a drive to organize and put processes in place, people who have a drive for profit, all of these things are fantastic in the right order, and in the right balance. The problem is when one or other starts to dominate, it then tends to skew the system 
and creates a disequilibrium. And it also creates the seeds for its own overthrow by the next generation or the, the next level of you know, leadership. And so what I'm really interested to understand is, are, are you seeing a shift in terms of the people who are leading sales operations away from command and control? Or are you seeing those people doubling down and bedding in? It's an interesting question. So usually people come to us when it's not working. Or so, so what happens then is they've got rid of a sales team because they find it too stressful. It's been poorly led. Perhaps they have to admit that their strategy didn't work. Or they have us as a reference point between their existing sales team and potentially outsourcing it and see where the results lie. What we often find is people have often complicated a process too much. So simplicity is the key to brilliance, is something Bruce Lee said, which is a quote I always quite like. You find that if you're very close to a technical service or technical product particularly, you can have overcomplicated it and be using language that your buyers aren't using, and you fail to see the, the, the bigger problem. So I think by outsourcing it to us, you then get kind of that, um, that full, full view of, of what the real, the real situation is. So it sounds to me like outsourcing may well help to develop the language that buyers actually resonate with. Um, so e even in order to test uh, new messaging, it makes sense to maybe outsource that or practice it, but not someone on payroll. What, one question for you then, Jack. I'm really curious. So often people are fixated on meaningless metrics in my book. They're interested in dials, number of first mm -hmm. meetings, uh, number of proposals, number of demos. Now, I'm more interested in data that's instructive, that tells me whether or not we're doing the right things and we are making progress towards the result. Tracking how busy people are in terms of their numbers is just a burden. Mm -hmm. And unless I am tracking data that helps me do my job better, then I, I may struggle to find the motivation to want to track that stuff or to even focus on it. But if you're paying me and making my job contingent on it, then I'll do that behavior. So first question, what are the unintended consequences of the way that most or the majority of people are tracking their salespeople's performance? Dials, talk times, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just all the, the, the basic cringy stuff that you hear in sales offices. And it's stuff that I've been targeted on in the past when it comes to it. And it's just, it boils down to it. If I wanted to go out there every single day and have a, a full diary, you could. You can get 10 minutes in the, the diary with anyone. And it's, it's, it's these ones where I feel like you see a lot of people that are getting those first meetings. Okay, but have you established before you've got that meeting that they have a problem and they're willing to solve it? Or have they done it because you've sent them a nice personalized LinkedIn message? So I feel like a lot of it is like, what is what is the actual goal? What is what is the intention for a meeting? Is it just to talk at them and tell them what, what you're trying to propose and build rapport? Or well, you, you've you've touched on something really important here, which again, I don't think people spend enough time considering the outcome uh, when they are driving behavior. Just because you've read it or seen it or other people do it 
doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't question it, mm -hmm. which is why I, I live in uh, despair of the dumbing down of education, uh, where um, you know, we're encouraging our children not to ask questions and to learn by rote and to believe stuff that was written 6,000 years ago as a way of guiding our lives in the 21st century. That genuinely concerns me because we're facing a future where we will not be capable of thinking our way out of the problem. So, Zach, tell me this. If you look at the mistakes people make in targeting and list building, let's start with that because no matter how good your salespeople are, if you point them at the wrong target, <laughs> there is a saying a stop clock is right twice a day, but you don't want that to be the, you know, your mainstay for the strategy for your sales team. So help me understand what can we do better? So the best way I ever saw it done, I, I had one very, very good sales leader and lots and lots of bad ones. And his strategy is something that we're trying to implement and we have a meeting. But, but basically, it's taking an individual salesperson and they will have a slightly different formula to the, the man or woman next to them. So what it tends to be about is how many effective conversations does it take to get someone uh, interested and motivated to have that meeting about that problem they're looking to solve? And how many meetings do you need to sit to achieve desired target? All the other things around call times and dial, minutes, uh, dials tend to kind of fall to the wayside when you have that. But also, it helps to motivate the individual quite a lot because rather than this kind of never-ending goal, this never-ending marathon that you run in, you might only need to have two effective conversations a day to achieve that desired outcome. And two effective conversations a day is a lot easier than saying, can you stay on the phone for six hours, 10 hours, whatever it may be. So I think the targeting can be really reduced down to that. And we find with our guys, it helps them seem a lot more motivated, less burnt out. When they achieve that goal, they can go home. So we don't do like a typical nine to five. Once they've done that goal, they can either stay and get ahead or they, or they can go home. So that, that'd be the first answer. Okay. And I, I would take it one step further. Once you've got that lead in-house, the metric that really matters is second meetings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're measuring your outsource provider, first meetings, that's fair. But the second meeting is really key. And also it needs to be fed back to you, know, you guys because it means that they turned up and they were contextually timely, relevant, and they were valuable. Valuable enough to be invited back. Now, the metric that really depresses me, and again, this is old, so it's pre-pandemic. It was seven out of eight first meetings does, didn't result in a second. Honestly, I imagine that's not much better now. If anything, it's probably worse. And mm -hmm. as we move into recession, that number will get worse again. So my question is this. Is there any logical reason for a business to focus on their cold market when there is a hot market right on their doorstep by working through third parties? So my question is, does it make sense to focus your outsourced sales arm on developing your partner network before you start developing your direct business? Before, I would say probably not. Alongside, as a strengthening tool, 100%. 100%. So if, if you were giving us the low-hanging fruit, you're not really getting a good understanding of potentially what we could do for you, potentially what the cold market looks like for that business. So I would say your, you know, we always advise clients, anything you can close yourself, anything that's warm leads, any warm channels that you've got, keep hold of those yourself. 
and give us the areas of the business that you're most, uh, give us the areas of the industry that you're most wanting to explore, research, introduce yourself to, et cetera, et cetera. So I think as a, as a full sales exercise, if you are looking to see where you fit into the market, it's worth tasking an outsourced agency on those cold areas so you've got a good understanding of them. Uh, right, okay. But my question was really around, if you, if you want to increase the outcome, mm-hmm. the, outco- the, the, the reason people bring people like you and I in is they want to make more sales, yes. ultimately. And they're pretty agnostic. If it's timely, relevant, legal, they can afford it, and it's not too much effort, then do they really care how we do it? No. Right. Okay. So I think we need to start asking better questions. The, the cold market is really, really hard work. You guys, you know, hats off to you. Um, it, it, there must be a slightly masochistic gene. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I still remember how hard it was in my day. And I don't imagine it's got easier because it's noisier. But the same skill, the same technology applied in a hot introduction versus a cold is likely to yield a 16 to 18 times higher close rate. Yeah. Which is the outcome we want. So my question is, why would you not focus your expensive and highly qualified outsourced agency on developing the right partners? Yeah, it's a really good point. It's a really, really good point. I, I would, if you've already got an influx of leads, we do have clients like that who have too many inbound warm leads and they want us to go through and qualify them a bit harder. That is an angle of things. But if you already have that influx and you can keep up with them, then you probably shouldn't be using us. It's an extra expense. You can already close things yourself. Typically, people are coming to us when they don't have that luxury. So if I was to answer your question, I'd, I could only be answering anecdotally from things that we've done for our clients. They typically aren't coming to us from a position of being fortunate in that regard. The challenge, I think, and so Jack, Jack this one's for you. The challenge at the moment is how do you hit your extended quota? Because let's face it, finance, new financial year, there was a hike. Um, so how do you hit your increased quota when you don't have the headcount to cover the territories or even the accounts, and you still got to hit that number? And chances are you're not going to have enough people in place, maybe three, six months till they ramp up. And that's if you can hire them now. Is that internally, Marcus? Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, if, if that's the condition that you're facing, how are you still going to hit that number? What advice would you give to people? What, what questions should they be asking? What I would say, first of all, what, what is the reason why you can't ramp up? Like, what, what is holding you back? I can't it? hire people. What, good people or you can't hire people? I, well, the, the, the people that I want haven't made it through the sifting. So I've got two vacancies. Um, and I've got three and a half million pound pipeline uh, quota to hit. So I have to hit it, but I don't have the in-house resource. I've got three part-time salespeople. That's my scenario. Okay. It's a, good, it's a very good question. It's real world, isn't it? Yeah. So I have to ask myself questions like, can I increase my average order value? If I can go from 10 to 100K, that saves a lot of prospecting. If I can outsource the top of the funnel... So my salespeople's time is spent in front of the customer, not speaking to voicemail and making dead dials and getting through to nobody. Yeah, there's, I guess there's, there's tooling when it comes to 
we we have quite high connection rates in terms of the tooling, in terms of the the data that we use and finding the right people to speak to. Because you know that you can make. I think when Zach started, he he targeted very well, and he knew that if he spoke to these particular type of people within ten phone calls, do you know what I mean? If you're doing the right things at the right and throwing the right stuff at the right wall, it will stick rather than just. So th this therefore means that we need to understand where the buyer is in their journey, mm -hmm. presumably, so that we can touch them at the right time. What direction or what work do you guys do with your clients to help them understand that? Because I think often they don't even understand what, it, what problem they really solve. They just do the feature benefit wrap, vomit up the show and tell, uh, and then wonder why they get thrown out with a boot on their ass. Yeah, so, so one question we always ask is, who's your top client at the minute that works for you? And they normally have one that they name because they're probably used to naming them anecdotally in meetings as their top client. So I'd say, so why did they start working with you? Because they liked our oh, this, this, and this. And if it's the wrong answer, if it's about their features and benefits, say maybe you should have a meeting with them and come back to us and ask them what it was that they were specifically struggling with that you helped them overcome. So what were they specifically struggling with? David Sutton was right. People buy in spite of how you sell, not because of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then what, what they tend to find is it's because of often a much simpler problem that they were facing. So, you know, it's something to do with time, risk, or money. They save them from one of those things, right? And then from that, they end up getting a bit of a picture of how we're going to then present their service or offering or perhaps how they can do it better themselves. But that's often the first thing that someone should be doing because the answer is often totally different than what they're expecting. So what are the problems that people bring you guys that aren't the real problem? We're, we're great when we get in front of people. We just can't get in front of enough. <laughs> oh, I've got a warehouse full of these products. <laughs> Can you help me sell a few? They sell themselves. Yeah. <laughs> we don't um, time. We don't have enough time to prospect. What are you doing? We're really busy. Yeah, yeah doing what? We're busy. Yeah. But what are you doing? Anything but prospecting. We, we've got a sales team who don't pick up the phone. They're more focused on email and social channels. Okay. Yeah. So could they pick up the phone? They're very busy with what they're doing at the minute on, on that side of things. Right. But you're not getting the results from that side of things. So often that's one of the things that can be quite frustrating. So this then strikes me as really a leadership and a management issue. Because... If your salespeople are doing that repeatedly and consistently, then you have to ask the question, who hired them, mm -hmm. who onboarded them, who trained them, who held them to account, who developed them, uh, who helped them? And if the answer is no one, that's like designing your business by basically throwing lots of people at a wall and saying, you do stuff. <laughs> but it's one of them if you if you have a sales rep on 30k a year and they only ever get to 50 percent of quota but they make 50k all right okay well they're breaking even and they're good and they bring jammy dodgers in on a friday well people are afraid to lose something tangible they built up this sales team from scratch they don't want to get rid of it it's very easy to play devil's advocate on it, Marcus. And <laughs> you could go in and say, look, here's what's wrong. But people, like you've said earlier, people don't want to hold up the ugly mirror. Well, and this is where I think we really have to start the conversation. I think it's our responsibility to start asking much harder questions and many of us to answer it from our own unique perspective. 
so people can make their own decision as to the, the way they would like to address it or start to address it. But as I look at sales as a profession, there are so many things wrong with it, but it has the potential to be an incredible, demanding and rewarding and satisfying and very noble career. And instead, it's been turned into this boiler room or this, uh, this quest for um, the dominance of the leadership board, leader board and all this other stuff. And I think the customer has been forgotten. The human being who works for you has been forgotten. And I'd just like to hold up, you know, hold out a request that there's a little bit more humanity in management and leadership. And we start to think about the people who work on our teams more deeply and why they come to work, what they're trying to get in life from their career in sales. We've just started on the hiring journey. So we've just got our first set of employees in and we've really made sure that we got into that motivation piece more. Because I remember when I first started off in sales, it was enough to tell someone you were money motivated. Hmm. That was enough. And they'd say, cool, all right, that's great. We're looking for, there wasn't enough depth in what's the actual intrinsic motivation behind the individual. One of the lads who works for us wants to be the first person in his family to be able to buy a car. He's from quite a poor background. He wants to be the first person in his family to be able to, he wants to change his family tree, which obviously is quite an intrinsic motivation. And how do we do that? And how do we help him get there? is a lot easier than someone who says, I'm money motivated because I want to go out and get pissed with my friends on the weekend. There's only so many hangovers before that gets old. And the, the reality is that money motivation actually um, tends not to be very satisfying in the long run. Um, I, I headhunted for 10 years and money normally came fifth or sixth in salespeople's hierarchy of needs. And what was really very interesting was the need for recognition, the need for a sense of satisfaction that the work that they were doing was meaningful and important. We spend a lot of time at work. And I think it's not unreasonable as an employee to expect an employer to create the conditions where you feel safe, mm -hmm. uh, supported, where there are people there who want you to thrive and are helping you to do so because it's in their best interest. All it does is add value to their business. And what strikes me is that as new young business owners, you have a choice. You can be complicit and repeat what happened to you mm -hmm. and reinforce that, or you can make better choices. So I'm really interested in the vision that you guys have for the kind of employer you intend to become, uh, the kind of business you want to create and the, the community around it. This is something that re is really on kind of... My thing has always been people and I've worked with so many twats and I want to be a leader that, that young 22, 23-year-olds should have had. And I've had some of them and they've been great. And I think it's so important that we create that community. I've worked in places where you've been hit in target and still feared for your job. And I think these guys are money motivated, but both of them have said at points that the, the team that we're hiring, it's like, it's good, but what you're creating here, we went, when Zach was up in Manchester a few weeks ago, we took him out for some drinks. They were like, what you're creating is a culture. Like it's, it's somewhere that we're excited to come because yeah, there's work to be done. The work gets done, but also you, I want to see these guys grow and I want to see them become it's like, where do you actually want to be in five, 10 years? Even if it's not with us, what, what would be something that we can help you on your personal development. And these should be like, like we spoke about, like 
there's people throughout our lives that shaped us and changed our paths and changed our narrative. And if you can do something small, you could give back now to the, the team and the people that are coming in. The chances are we have a meeting will grow on to be the, the biggest outsourced SDR and make gazillion pounds and <laughs> no team will ever have a, a, an inside sales team. Again, the chance of the team that we've got now continuing with that for the rest of their lives, probably slim because people want to move on and want to do their own things and grow. You know what I mean? You might have some people for 20, 30 years. What, what, what are the values that you share? There's a, there's a, what Zach does on the first day with everyone that joins, we have company values. One of them is you're never too big to take the bins out. I could read them to you, Marcus, and see what you think. I'm curious to see what yeah, your, what your opinion would be. So hold on a second. So this is like your operating model in effect. It basically, it's the culture model that we thought when we've got two different offices, we thought you could basically swap and change the employees and the same culture would apply in both setting. Okay, so do your employees make decisions by filtering through the values? Yes, that's that's the way that we... So it, so some of this is already... I'll, I'll list them out to you and you'll be able to hopefully see the ones that are kind of important to us. So the number the number one thing is no arseholes. Yep. Good. So that's a, that, that's a hiring one. The yep. second one is the fight is outside. So rather than... You often see sales teams built on competitiveness yep. internally. 100%. Love it. <laughs> why, why, why are sales teams not cooperating? It's hard enough as it is. Why would you choose to compete internally? Why yeah. not elevate everyone internally? Just because they're good. Why not revel in that? Yeah, exactly. So that's and learn the, from it. And so then the re- see it as a way of stretching. We got, the, Sorry, we, up, we, got, we got these two lads from a recruitment day and the big push for these recruiters was talking about how like they need to be more competitive and tell us how competitive you are. We're only really interested in being competitive with yourself. Like, I don't really care about you shooting down someone next to you because they're not doing as well as you. So anyway, know what you know, what you don't know, and don't be afraid to ask for help is the third one. So there's no egos around what you don't know, especially when things are, uh, you know. If you're above emptying the bins, you probably will be soon. Performance matters. Unlimited love, limited time. We take our work and success seriously, but ourselves far less so. So we do have a laugh and a joke. We're quite pally with each other, but when it's time to work, it's serious. Criticize, this is more, more for me and Jack, but criticize behavior, not character. So we've had a lot of bosses who would like call you an idiot, for instance, like I'm an idiot, or I'm, I take things too personally, or I'm an emotional person. It's much easier to just talk about the behavior. Character takes, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more personal. And then, it's all about transparency. So we've just got transparency as its own thing. So that's been working really well where the lads feel like, you know, I feel a bit rubbish today. Can I grab you for five minutes? And they just tell us it's a bit like a therapy session. They let it go. They tell us all about it. And the last one is about integrity and honesty uh, being non-negotiable. They're excellent. Okay. So what's interesting about this is that they're not just about the it, the function. They're about the I and the we and the relationship between the three. Because most sales leaders, certainly of my generation, have grown up with it's all about the KPIs. It's all about the metrics. It's a numbers game. In all honesty, it is a numbers game if you are playing the dumb game. 
It's not a numbers game if you actually put time into thinking. Selling is a cerebral act. It is something you can do robotically, but at best, you are then a transaction animal. And what you're doing is you're looking for people who are in the market to buy. It's rare that you're going to help someone solve a problem that they didn't even know that they had and then help them to come back time and time again. So what I really like about uh, all of this is that there is humility built into it, rigorous authenticity. One thing that is missing, I think, is uh, the concept of uh, buyer and employee safety. Let me run this I, I, would, I would build that in personally. Could you define that for me? Yeah, I fundamentally believe every buyer deserves to feel safe whenever they touch or are touched by a salesperson. It shouldn't be something that should send their hackles up and their defense walls. We need to help them feel safe and comfortable with us because we turn up and they know that our word is our bond. We are credible. We're reliable. We have low self-orientation. One other thing I would add, which is a quote, and I can't remember uh, which CEO of Goldman Sachs it was, but it was before they turned really bad. <laughs> and it was, we're long-term selfish. Long-term selfish. Go on. Yeah. You get your needs met by helping other people get their needs met. So you've got to wait. You don't try and get your needs met up front. You don't try mm. and scalp people for short-term gain. You're thinking, how do I make this a customer for 15 years, 20 years, not how do I transact it, my quota this quarter? Sure. Yeah. In the same sense that giving to charity makes you feel good, so you are quite selfish in that sense. Well, I, I think as human beings, we are social primates. We're, we're, we derive enormous satisfaction from making contribution to our fellow human beings. And what I think has happened is through the industrial age, we've kind of beaten that out. We've beaten out of the workplace the ability to do a lot of things, to integrate, to engage with other people. But actually, if you look at our success as a species, it's through our ability to cooperate and then communicate what we've learned to others and to the following generations and to build on previous uh, generations' work. We don't have to reinvent the flint axe every single time. We're in space now. <laughs> so, I think we've got to spend more time challenging ourselves as owners, as leaders, as founders, as managers, to ask better questions of ourselves, especially as we go into this very challenging market. So let me ask you the really tough question. What, what have you done to prepare for what's to come, Zach? That's a, that's a great question. So I suppose if we were to, there's a great exercise that I picked up from a psychologist around drawing a circle. You're only allowed to put in the circle what's in your control. So what I can make sure that I do is have the best tools that are available to, to the market on the market to us. I can make sure that we have the best team and go through the best recruitment process, can make sure we've got a culture in place that we all believe in and adhere to. And then I can make sure that we're not reacting, but anticipating. So being able to, I think that's the problem with a lot of poor leaders is there's a reaction. Oh, why did this go wrong? What Rather than this anticipation of, I've spotted a bit of a, a hole here that's going to happen in about three months where perhaps the pipeline drops off, for instance, or perhaps there's a, a bit more of a client influx. So we need to have more people in to serve them. So we need to start a recruitment drive now. So I think those things are the things that are within our control. There's probably some others that I'm missing there. 
But looking at those things that are within our control and the things that are outside, try not to get too involved in, in those. So le- letting go of what you have no control over is great. Absolutely. I think two things that I see the best and most resilient organizations do. One is they push their de- uh, decision-making down the chain of command. So they delegate decision-making and they trust their people. And you know you're not trusted um, when they have to make all the decisions above you and they want to see everything and nothing can go out and it's got to follow. You've got to be more flexible. And that's the other part. You've got to create flexibility, creativity. And what I'm seeing the most rigorously flexible organizations, the ones that can adapt fastest, are the ones that allow many eyes on a problem. And everyone has a voice and everyone's opinion matters. And maybe that might be something else you want to build in. Mm. Your opinion matters. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a good one for our our culture numbers as well. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very interesting. And it's very, quite, uh, very evolved to have done that. The next question is, what permission have you given to your people in order to know that they can actually uh, live these values, live this culture? When you say permission? Well, a lot of people say, oh, yes, we embrace failure, and then they punish failure. Right, okay. <laughs> so what are they allowed to do without having to turn uh, go up the chain of command to get permission? I will always tell them, obviously being quite hands-on with the Manchester team, I will always tell the, the lads that there's no... You are in control of, obviously, what you want to do. That It's a results-driven company. We want that. So what do you need from me? What do you want me to do? I spoke to one of the guys and he said, actually, I know that sometimes when I hit my, my quota, sometimes I want to go, but I actually want you to keep me and motivate me. So it's putting it back on them and giving them the permission to say, okay, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I, I'm here to guide you and run this company and, and steer the ship. But you have a role to do. If you need advice and you want to open that door, amazing. I'll only suggest something so many times before saying that's not something that you want to do. There's there's extra things outside of the day-to-day job they can be doing to improve and get better. There are only going to be so many times when I suggest that before saying, actually, you can you can make your own choices, you're adults. But like with anything, actions will lead to consequences. So they know that. And it's making sure if I feel like they are heading towards disaster, I'll be there to guide them. But also... They've got to learn along the way. And so uh, I know that we've talked about having clarity and transparency um, are really key. So when you take on someone new, uh, do you have a structured pre-onboarding and onboarding process? Yeah, we do. We do. Mind sharing, uh, give us an overview of what that looks like. Yeah, of course. So the first thing is we go through the culture part that I was just talking about. We go through that piece. Then we, so we've been hiring graduates. Ideally for us, it works best when someone knows nothing. That's been the best hiring model rather than reprogramming people that have got bad habits. I'm sure you found that yourself, Marcus, in, in your life. So then what we would go through is basically the bits that we would need to teach them to get them doing their job as quickly as possible. So often I've had this in jobs before where you're sat in the corner for the first few days waiting to grab leadership time. You don't get it before you know it, you're demotivated to be there. So what we do is we, do a training slot at the first thing in the morning when they come in. And then whatever we've taught them within that training slot, they go and do that in the afternoon. So it might be getting them on the phone to one of our clients. It might be getting them on the phone to prospect for us. 
But just getting them on the phone straight away is part of that. And then the next day we pick up that training again. It probably takes about a month to get someone up to speed for us where they know that first cold outreach to appointment booked process. But we do a training slot every day in the morning, first thing that helps them implement something in the afternoon. Um, Are they doing any of the training? The the new people? Yeah. Well, we're not there yet, so we're only in our first batch of people. But that is the next step. where we. There's a really interesting bit of uh, uh, learning science. Um, If you have someone do something without the learning and then score it and then teach them and then have them do it again and then score that, they can see the progress. Um, And that's a big motivator to reinforce the behavior because they can see the difference. Um, So have them have them do it. And even better than have them teach it because to uh, teach, you have to learn twice. Amazing. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It makes so much sense, actually, because when we've started teaching the process, you end up going back over things and thinking, how do those two bits connect? I need to sort of think about that again, you know? I use a tool called Mobile Practice. I'm sure that uh, you've got other tools that you can use. But what I like to do is use Mobile Practice to take those micro moments. It may be 15 to 30 seconds, maybe up to three minutes, a moment in the sale where I know the person is struggling with that particular piece of communication. So have them practice it at a time that's convenient to them and uh, record it and save it only when they are happy. Now, what I find is on average, they record four or five times before they save it. So they see the bloodbath that's them in front of the customer and they become more self-aware. And then I can coach them back and forth as many times as I need to until they own that moment. And then I can use that as a best practice tool for pre-onboarding for in the recruitment process in pre-onboarding onboarding and when people are stuck if you index it properly then you can create this archive of great moments so when this objection comes up and you're dealing with this type of person in this job this is what you do yeah that's amazing because I, I think we need to be way more scientific about how we help our salespeople develop and own that responsibility no i think that's a great idea with the next batch of recruits that we bring in that part of the training should be by the guys before them because they've had great results and probably learned things that we didn't teach them you know things that they're naturally and what's uh, the other payoff the other payoff is they feel valued validated like they're part of like they're part of something they're not just one man and? on his own and and we we don't have to do the training <laughs> Okay, and even better, you're now exploring whether or not they have capability to manage and lead. Which yes, and that is why succession a lot of people, planning. Yeah, wanna, and that's that, if that's you want to ever get out, you better have some successes that can mean that you're irrelevant. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a lot of people that we hire. That's part of that. You know, we've talked before about money motivation being further down. Often yeah. that progression is maybe number one. They want something they can progress into. So, yeah, that's a light bulb moment there, Mark. Because we should have had to pay you for that. that's that's right (laughs) the price of doing it is when you improve it you have to tell me and you have to pass it on as well yes of course yeah yeah will do cool oh i'm glad okay tell me this when you look at the real problem with sales it's a very complex mix of issues it's down partly down to how you're funded how you're led how you're managed how you're measured the people that you work with, the division of labor, all of that stuff. Now, it strikes me that as the market starts to get a lot tighter, 
I don't know if you're seeing that yet. What I saw is during the pandemic, there were a lot of companies that thought they, this was great and they thought they grew their market share. Actually, what happened was more people resonated with their message and so they bought their stuff. That message is, has to change now because people who are in a boom market have different requirements to people who are moving into what looks like harm's way. Interest rates are going up, inflation, supply chain problems, you know, recruitment problems, retention problems with both customers and uh, staff. Uh, we've got World War III breaking out. Um, yeah, who thought? Now, all of that is the backdrop. So what actually is happening now is the market's starting to pull back. And we're going to see a lot more tightening. So going forward, how do people need to change their message in your book? What do, what do you think they need to start thinking about to offer protection from that harm? I would personally say that the salesman or the salesperson gets a bad rep. It's because of what is attached to that role. If you switch salesman or something like that to psychologist or consultant, and all you're doing is the way I view it is I'm not going in to sell something and I've, I've switched my whole mentality. I'm going in to solve a problem. Do you have that problem? No. Cool. Well, then why are you, why are you sitting here? Why are you laid down on my chaise long if you, if you don't have any problems? Do you know what I mean? So if you, if you go in and you can't sell to everyone, and I've, I've had bosses that say, of course you can. You can t go in as a psychologist that's there to find the root of the problem and really dig deep and really ask questions and stop caring. If you go in with that mentality and you're not attached to outcome, you will see so much more success. And I think it's the salesperson will always have a note attached to it that is a sleazy, slimy snake. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's just the way of the world. If you switch it up individually, intrinsically inside, then over time you will see a better generation coming through that will then pave the way and lead that future. I think all of that's very, very relevant. I'm delighted to hear it coming through from you know, young leadership. My, my question was slightly broader than that, though, which <laughs> is um, around what we're really dealing with is a number of interrelated complex problems. So I, I'm thinking as business like yourself, you can go in, you can start work, you know, sell to an organization, some outsourced lead generation. But in reality, that's only part of the, uh, the solution. And with, with uh, an imperfect broken system that's found uh, uh, an equilibrium, if you start messing with just one bit of it and you don't balance out the other parts, it goes, you know, goes skew with. So I, I'm really curious about your thoughts about working collaboratively, adjacent providers who either sell before you, same time or after you, and maybe co-selling and uh, you know, working within an ecosystem. Yeah, so we, we have started doing that already. So often we're seen as the sales arm, but there are obviously marketing arms and things like that out there that can also help. So we do have one partner that tends to team up on when it's a one-to-many exercise, let's say, for example. And that for us is that diagnostic approach and being that therapist, you tend to get a much broader problem than trying to put people in boxes of you're our gold package member, you're our premium package member. Instead of doing that by really going to the problem, what have you done so far? What hasn't worked? What's the impact? If this stays this way for another five years, does the business crash? 
by doing that, we're often able to add little bits in that, well, why don't we top this up with a marketing channel that's going to bring warm leads in? Why don't we look at some coaching? Um, it might be that we have to bring someone like yourself in, Marcus, from a revenue strategy perspective to actually look at the, the bottom line or the top line of the business and look at a totally different strategy. And we end up being that kind of coal face for them, but backed up by all this other team of, of experts. And how did you earn the right to that level of loyalty? How did, go on. Well, you, you earned the right to that level of trust and loyalty. So how did you do it? From the customer? From the customer? Yeah, with, the, with, the, with that customer, how did you earn the right? It's through, honestly, it's, I know it sounds cliche, it's through listening and not actually saying a lot. Often what happens at the start of a sales process, I'm sure you've, I mean, Marcus, it feels like I'm talking about sucking eggs to you, but let's think, let's think broadly. People often start off with very opaque terms. And what do they actually mean by that? So what do you mean? I think we need to be here. When you say you think, what do you mean by that? And by asking, yeah, and by asking good questions, getting them to really feel maybe a bit uncomfortable and perhaps emotional. So me and Jack are really into the book called The Chimp Paradox, which talks yeah. about the different parts of the brain being involved. It's actually a very ancestral chimp mechanism that's going to be making decisions and pushing motivation. And that's the bit that's going to actually buy into you as the individual. So that's the bit where you're going to get that trust and loyalty from. I have to be speaking to you on a very personal, personable, intrinsic level, get into that motivation. And if I make that person on the other end of the phone or the other end of the meeting feel really understood and heard and validated, then we tend to build that loyalty through that rather than through case studies and me selling you a dream. Interesting. Okay. Guys, we're going to have to wrap up, unfortunately, but um, this has been really, really instructive. Thank you. Tell me something. How old are you both? We'll go back to 23. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's that was really yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're my age, everyone. <laughs> Daddy, children as policemen. So my question is this. You, you've got a golden ticket, each of you, and you can go back and whisper in the ear, of the idiot Zach and uh, Jack, you know, age 23. What one bit of advice would you give each of them? In fact, you can give each other the advice because you knew each other back then. (laughs) (laughs) What one bit of advice did uh, Jack need, Zach? Go on, you can go first. You can be completely honest. I would say for Jack, he was often trying to find his path like most of us are, right? So I would advise Jack to just trust the, again, very cliche, but just trust the journey. Like it it does all work out in the end. I know you feel a bit lost now, but in the end, everything does does fall into its right place. Well, I think that's very good advice. Obviously, I've known you for 15, 16 years. I think that that could be replicated vice versa. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like, if you look at where we were, you're looking at two people with degrees in drama and music and it's (laughs) worrying about what we're going to do. And I think, I think worry, like it's just, don't worry. It'll be all right. And we're on a path now. Who knows what the next decade is going to bring? I'm sure trials and tribulations and joys and Odds are you're going to be have, you know, have about twelve different career moves at mm. least. Um, you know, I, I've had a couple, but the pace of change and the length that you lot are going to have to work because <laughs> 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 you know, propping up us old funny duddies and the pension pot because Gordon Brown sold off all the goodies. <laughs> yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> you, 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 you're going to have to ask really good questions because you're going to have to make up for an aging population that's old, diabetic, fat thrombotic and everything else and crotchety 
and they become more stupid and conservative as they get older. And you're still going to have to do the, you know, work out, can you keep democracy? So good luck. <laughs> I look forward to it, Marcus. Thanks, Marcus. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I, I, I like being a harbinger of doom. You don't think I have a Statler and Waldorf in the background for any other reason. <laughs> okay, so how is it the two of you don't kill each other? That's a good question. We actually started off, before we started the business, we sent each other a nice message and the voice note that you can look back on that's basically saying no matter what happens on a bad day we're still friends first we tend to hold each other accountable as well so you have these moments of disagreeing with each other but it is a 50 50 partnership so we are quite good at listening to the other side even if we don't agree which i think is quite hard to find in this 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 day and age Um, it's not personal. It's, it's, I think that the umbrella that sits above us both, if we are arguing and I want something or Zach's got an idea and I don't think it will work, the umbrella is we both want what's right for the business. So we, Zach's brilliant at it and I'm trying to get better at removing ego from the situation. Do I want something because it will make me feel listened to and heard or do I want something because it's better for the business? And that is the umbrella that sits above us actually we're both making, we're both arguing or we're both disagreeing, but because we have the the same end goal in mind. And we have two different offices, which definitely helps. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Zach Thompson, Jack Frimston, thank you very much. How can people get hold of you? So we are big on LinkedIn. We post a lot of ridiculous stuff on LinkedIn. So <laughs> engage with us on there. So Zach Thompson, Jack Frimston. Also, our email formats are just Zach at wehaveameeting.com or Jack at wehaveameeting.com. So if you want to schedule some time in to have a chat with us about helping you, then please do. Zach, Jack, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this instructive and helpful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who could do with a listen. And if you feel the urge, go over to Apple Podcasts. I know I ask every time. None of you ever do it, you miserable buggers. <laughs> Go over and put an honest review. Tell them that you hate me. I don't care, but just put a review on Apple Podcasts, please. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Stay safe. Be selling. Bye-bye.